This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. As these people who had been, who'd been redeemed out of that culture, he says, put to death those things in you. Sexual immorality is just this broad term, the most broad term for any kind of sexual sin, and he, he adds to that, impurity, passion, evil desires, and lastly, covetousness. Uh, this, this self-seeking craving for more, in the case of sexual sin, uh, craving for something that you should not have. He qualifies it as, in essence, idolatry. Idolatry. Lifting up sexual pleasure to this, to this place that only God should have uh, in, in our lives. Well, second, he says, put them all away. In verse eight, put them all away. Uh, anger being the first, setting the tone for the rest. Beyond issues of, of sexual immorality, they are to, to put away anger and, and all of its varied expressions in their lives, and it's varied. It's varied. Anger sets the tone here, and, and it, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's a, a sudden outburst of anger like wrath or something more, more subtle, like quietly slandering through vengeful gossip. Put these things all away, he says. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And he, he tags on there, do not lie, as he's talking about the sins of the mouth. Well, this isn't just for the Colossians in their culture. We too, we too live in a society that, that exalts sexual immorality. We live in a society that, that thrives on, on anger and rage. Just get on any social media platform and you'll see it. <laughs> You've experienced it. Um, but remember, this this is a letter to a church. This is not so much pointing out the sins of the culture. He's talking to Christians. He wants us to take these things home. This is talking about sin that, that, that still lingers, clinging to our earthly sinful flesh. In the church today, yes, issues of Adultery still happen. Addiction to pornography. And in some circles, just full-on welcome acceptance of things like homosexuality and, and all sorts of sexual immorality. We struggle. We struggle with anger in our responses to our brothers and sisters in Christ um, just over differences in opinions. <laughs> different ideas and thoughts and how one ought to do something. Well, this, this shouldn't be so in the church, he says. This shouldn't be so. And Paul gives three reasons here to put these, the, these things to death in our lives. He gives three reasons, and we'll go through them quickly. First, God's wrath is stored up for these things. Look at verse six. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
yes, part, part of the good news of the gospel is to realize the bad news. Human rebellion is storing up for us the wrath of God. And it has to be said. It has to be said. Apart from Christ, Paul would say in Ephesians 2 that we were children of wrath. We were children of wrath even as the rest of mankind. All of us. But, but, those sins which accrued for us a a debt which we could not pay, not with a, a lifetime of good karma, right? No, he took those things and he, he nailed that certificate of death on the cross. Your sins have been covered. The wrath of God for you has been satisfied on the cross. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So how, Paul says, how can you go uncomfortably welcoming sin for which the wrath of God is over? It's inconsistent with the gospel. It's inconsistent with the gospel. Well, the second reason he gives uh, to mortify sin is that these sins are, are associated with how you used to live. How you used to live. Uh, without Christ. Verse seven. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Before coming to Jesus, we lived in this way. We lived only uh, according to our appetites with our minds set on, on earthly things, but this ought not to characterize a Christian now. We can't keep on living in the very ways from which God has saved us out from. He's removed us from the kingdom of darkness. That's the way we used to be. He has freed us from enslavement to sin. If we are Christ-oriented now, how can we go on living as though we've never received Christ at all? The third reason to mortify sin he gives. Living in sin is inconsistent with our new existence in Christ now. Look at verse nine. He said, do not lie to one another. Then he gives a reason, and this is a reason in his whole argument, not just for lying, but for all of them. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is something he says we have already experienced. This is in the past. You are a new creation now in Christ Jesus. We are to cut out sin in our lives because we've already been severed from that that old self. We've already been cut off and removed from, from that old self. Uh, the word self there is, is really man, the, the old man, um, or a, perhaps a, a good translation, uh, your old humanity, your old humanity. We have inherited a human existence from our first parents that is corrupted, fallen, enslaved to the powers of sin and, and death. But for those who who have put their faith in Christ, they are 
united to him in his death and so have been cut off from that old humanity and now exist as those who are part of this new humanity, those who are in Christ, like, like a change of, of clothes. By faith, we have removed those old filthy rags and, and Christ has, has cleansed us from the stain of sin and the stench of death and he's put on his righteousness over us. That's the heart of the gospel. Why after, say after two weeks of going on a, on a backpacking trip, no shower, just so you know, there's, there's no showers out there, <laughs> just you're out in the wilderness. Uh, the one change of clothes that you have, it's a backpacking trip, you, you pack light, why would you, would you come back from that trip? Oh, finally drop all those things, take a shower and you feel clean and then grab those dirty clothes and put them back on. And you, just, you feel icky just talking about it. <laughs> it's gross, it, it's gross, we'll just say it, it's gross. It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. We are part of a new humanity now, he says. Why would you seek to go back to the same way of living if you have been made new? So that's the first implication of, of having a Christ-oriented life. As those who look to Christ in this life, believers are to mortify sin because it's, it's inconsistent with our new existence in Christ. It's inconsistent with our new existence in Christ. Second, Believers are, are being transformed. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. Look again at verse 10. You have put on the new self and this in your new existence now, he says, which is being renewed in knowledge after its creator, in the image of its creator. We are being renewed, he says, as new creations. You've already been made new in Christ. You are being made new in another sense. We live in that tension of, of between the, the already and the not yet. We are still in process. And, I, and I, I titled this sermon in this way, we are becoming what we already are in Christ. We are becoming what we already are in Christ. I think I stole that from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, heard I've heard it many places, but that's the furthest back in my thinking I can go. He may have stolen it from somebody else too, but I'm not that clever. Um, we are becoming what we already are in, in Christ. This, this renewal, he says, is happening in the area of a knowledge, of knowledge a new way of thinking. We are being renewed in how we think. Renewing of the mind, yes, comes as we, as we train our thinking according to this, right? According, according to God's word. But, but more specifically here in this context, as we continually set our minds, we said last week, we're setting our minds on things above, these heavenly realities, these spiritual realities, namely 
the person of Christ and what we have in him. That's where our, our mind is continually being renewed in knowledge. Rather than being captivated by the philosophies of this world, right? chapter two, verse, verse eight, going all the way back there as he kicked off this, this whole main part of the book, uh, rather than being captivated by the philosophies of this world, we ought to be captivated by the philosophy according to Christ, thinking according to, to Christ and who he is and what he, he has done for us. Because indeed, in verse three of chapter, chapter two, he says, in him is hidden all the wisdom and knowledge of God. Where else would we go to renew our thinking, to renew our understanding of who we are and how we ought to live. Now this isn't just some formula we can manufacture for ourselves. We're not renewing ourselves. We're not changing ourselves. Uh, It's hard to change yourself at the level of, of, of desire and appetite. I'm not much of a chocolate person. I don't think I can trick myself into being a chocolate person. Um, no, this, is, this, requires, this requires God's work in us. It, it's in the passive there, which is being renewed. Us, in our new selves, are being renewed. We're not renewing ourselves. Um, theologians like to call that the, the divine passive. It's here in the passive, it doesn't tell us right here who is doing the renewing, but in the context of Colossians, we understand. It's a work of God in Christ uh, to be renewing you in this way. No, so it's, it's not just a formula we can, I just gotta think a little different and now I'm gonna be pure in my life. I'm gonna experience this transformed life. No, but, but we do set our minds somewhere. We are called to set our minds somewhere. We set our minds on things above. We set our minds on Christ, and then we plead with him. We pray. We pray for this transformation. We, pr- we pray for renewing of, of our minds and our hearts. This is what Paul does earlier in the book of Colossians, right? Pedro talked about it in chapter one. He was praying for the church, and, and, and he asked that, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's asking them to be, God, would you fill these people with, with this knowledge? And he says it's gonna work, he prays that it would work itself out in how they live and in bearing, bearing fruit in their lives and increasing in the knowledge of God. He's praying, God, would you do this for these people? We need that prayer too. We need to pray these things for one another and pray these things uh, for ourselves. It's not a formula. So we reorient our lives toward Christ in our thinking, asking God to give shape to, to our minds and our affections um, as we're seeking to put these things to death in us. We looked at uh, Hebrews 12, uh, one through three last week. We re- re- recited it together in, in a reading. And it talks about us running a race, picturing the Christian life as, as running a race and the need to, to toss the sin aside that so easily clings to us. And what does he say? Looking where? Where's the power for this to happen? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the founder of our faith. He's the beginner of our faith. And he's the perfecter of our faith. Why else would we go anywhere else? 
He's doing this work of transformation. This is why Paul in, Paul in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 3, verse 18 would say, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. We have this Christ-oriented mindset, and that's what we're taking in. We're looking at Jesus, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. You want to live an ethical life? You, you want transformation in your life? Well, we, we can set up rules and, and try to just be, in general, a, a, good, a good person. Um, but do you want to be changed? Do you want to be changed? Well, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You, you, won't, you won't find the capacity for change in yourself in this way. I, I can change, change some habits about myself. I can do that. But I can't be transformed by looking to myself uh, to experience this kind of transformation. Can't look at myself, I can't look to others, I can't, can't look to a 10-step program to holiness. No, I need to look to Jesus. The experience of transformation is, is, is born out of our union with Christ, right? We abide in him. He is, he is the vine and we are the branches after all. Well, not only are we, are we new creations that are being renewed, being transformed, but second, as new creations, we are, we are new people. We are a new people in whom Christ dwells. We're a new humanity, just, not just individually, each of us individually, but also corporately, together, and, and diversely together. Christ is, is everything for not just me, but for all of us. Christ dwells not just in me, but in all of us. So he says, verse 12, here, that is in the new humanity, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Not that there are no distinctions, Right? There are distinctions uh, in the church. We're all different. We all come from different backgrounds. Of course there are distinctions, and the Bible's comfortable with there being distinctions in the church. But in Christ, what he's saying, those distinctions carry no weight for your value between the, before the living God. These distinctions carry no weight for your union with, with Christ and what you have accessible to you in Christ. These distinctions carry, carry absolutely no weight when it comes to your salvation and, and the blessings of that salvation in your life. The, these distinctions carry no weight in your ability to be putting to death the deeds of the flesh because you have Christ. No matter who you are or where you come from, if, if Christ is your everything, he's your all, he's your life, then you have all you need. You are now part of this new humanity. No matter who you are, if Christ dwells in you, he says. 
Christ dwells in you, empowering you to, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's why Paul in, in Galatians 2.20 can say, I have been crucified in Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You are new creations, but you're still in progress. You're, you're still in process. Uh, you are being renewed, becoming, we said, what you already are in Christ. In one sense, you are holy. In another sense, you're being made holy. We have a, a ways to go. Uh, but this is his Christ, uh, Christ's work in you. And you can picture you know, a multi-billionaire uh, approaching a, a homeless man that's just there in the gutter. He's been living this way his en entire adulthood. Uh, from a human perspective, man, he's so lost. He he's so lost. And there as he's, he's lying in his own, own filth, the multi-billionaire comes up and, and tells him, hey, I don't know who you are. I've, I've opened up a new social security number. I, I've given you a new name. I've opened a bank account. I've, I've dumped hundreds of millions of dollars in there. It's yours. Right there in that moment, right there in that moment, he's a new creation. He is a new man. He's got a ways to go. We walk by, we go, him? He's a multimillionaire? <laughs> he doesn't look like it. Doesn't look like it to us. But then what needs to happen? Well, he, he grabs his hand and pulls him out of the gutter. So let's, let's start with getting a new meal. Let's, let's get a hearty meal in you. Um, takes him somewhere. Let's, let's have you take a shower. I'll, I'll grab you a new, new set of clothes. But maybe he's going to have to set him up with some, some counseling to kind of help him rework his life and, and and, and reorient what, what life could be. He's got to teach him how to, how to deal with finances of that magnitude. He's, he's got to help him with the process of understanding what it is to, to buy a house and, and live in one and care for it. And He's got a ways to go. There's a process to go. But in that moment at the beginning, it was a new man, a new creation. That's the Christian life. You and I are, are in process. We're becoming really what we already possess in in him, in Christ. Well, orienting your life toward Christ means you can, yes, you can put to death sin in your life and you're called to and you are being transformed in, into the image of Jesus. And third, believers are to put on Christ-like character. We put off sin, we put on Christ-like character in the community of the church in particular. Paul now moves to, to a set of five virtues. Earlier he did two sets of, of five vices and now he's doing a set of five virtues here and with further explanation attached to it and, and working out examples for us to, to, to understand how do we do this? How do we orient ourselves towards Christ and, and think upward and then have that apply in, in our relationships and how we treat one another? What does that look like? Well, he, he, he dives into that as well. So let's look at verse, verses uh, 12 
through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So it gives us these, these five virtues then we're, we're, to, we're to put on. Compassionate hearts. And, and flowing out of that, that, that compassionate heart, kindness, he says. Showing kindness then to, to one another. In our relationships, expressing humility. Understanding who we are before God. That we're on, all in the same field here. Um, meekness, this, this gentleness uh, towards one another. And patience, yes, it's gonna require patience. Bearing with one another, he says, um, as we interact with one another as a church. But each, each of these, ultimately, he says, is an expression of love. Put on love above all these things, which, which binds all these things together. He says love is, all these things are ultimately an expression of this love and is to be experienced within the community of the church. After all, if, if, you, if you have a group of diverse people from various cultures and, and backgrounds and customs and norms and, and maybe like family quirks, like, <laughs> we're all different, we're all coming from different places, it's gonna require putting on love in all these different ways and, and more. Now Paul Paul is still, he's still thinking of these things as implications of having oriented ourselves towards Christ. Um, so let's consider three examples of what it looks like to have a Christ-oriented life within the community. He, he's trying to put, have the rubber meet the road here. He, wants, he doesn't want to leave this as, as theory. He wants, to, he wants to show you how, how to work through these, these kinds of processes um, in how we relate to one another. So the first one is, is putting on love, putting on all these, all these various uh, virtues in our relationships out of our identity in Christ, out of who we are in Jesus. Not, not out of sheer willpower. No, not out of sheer willpower, but we put on love out of our identity in Christ. Look at 12 again. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, as God's chosen ones, as, as those who are holy, as those who are beloved. Put on these things, he says, as those who, who are counted amongst the elect. You're not putting these things on to, to look good to God. He's already chosen you. In fact, he chose you before the foundations of the earth in Christ. That's who you are. So put on these things. He says, you are those who are holy. You are already holy. Put on these things. Put on these things that are consistent with what you are in Christ. And, and as he's calling us to love. He calls us to love and he says, as beloved. As those who are loved by God already. In essence, love others out of the knowledge of God's love for you. Love others out of the knowledge of, of God's love for you. Uh, 
We don't need to be motivated in just, just in ourselves. I just, with my own willpower, I just gotta love this person. No, no, that doesn't work. So many, so many times it doesn't work. And it's not because of what's in these other people. It's not just people are so lovely, so you should love them. Uh, no, no, often we're not in those situations. Uh, in the times that we're having to practice to put on these things, we're not in the situations where the other person is lovely. No, he says, don't look here, and don't look here. Look up, look there. You are beloved by God. And look at how he has loved you. He sent his only son into this world to live a human life for you, to die a sinner's death for you, and to be raised from the dead, stamping God's approval on on all these things and what Christ has accomplished. That's what God has done for you, to show you his love. Take that in. Now you have new capacities for love because you're not seeking for for love from them. You've been loved already uh, in the greatest way. He's trying to help us work out these, these, these concepts in actual living, in actual living. Look up, see the love of God, now you can love others. Two, two other examples he, he gives. Christ-oriented forgiveness. He does the same thing with Christ-oriented forgiveness. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, someone sinned against you, forgive each other. Is it just, forgive each other. You're, you're supposed to forgive each other. Well, what's the motivation? What is he asking us to think about? As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Yes, you are called to forgive, and you must forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ when they sin against you in this church. But where do we look? How do we orient ourselves to help us? You see, he says, look up. Has someone offended you? Has someone sinned against you? Look to Jesus. Have a shift in your perspective. Orient yourself toward Christ and remember God has forgiven me much. God has forgiven me much. He's given me his son and he took all my sins and rebellion against him and he's nailed it to the cross. Now go turn to your brother and sister. Forgive and forgive. The third example he gives here is is a Christ-oriented peace, a Christ-oriented peace. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. We've been brought into into one body, and we're to experience peace together in one body. Hopefully your your left hand isn't at odds with your right, right? Our, our, Our bodies to be at peace with each other. Well, we are all now brought into this one body and ought to experience peace. But he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Not only has has Christ secured for you peace between you and God. We saw that, uh, Matt Hauck preached about that in chapter one, that you, in Christ, you have been reconciled to God. You've been reconciled to him. He He made peace by the blood of his cross. Christ has purchased for us peace with God, but not just peace with God, 
as we put our faith in him and we're united to him who is the head, we are then also united to this body. So Christ has also purchased for us peace, not only with God, but peace one with another, making this new humanity who are now one, though we come from a diverse uh, set of, of cultures and backgrounds and, and, and all these things. He's made us one because of the blood of his cross. He says as much in Ephesians chapter two as well, taking the Jews and, and the Gentiles and have made them one, he says, made them one. And he's reconciled us not only to God, but to one another. The peace that comes from Christ, he says, let that be what rules, what rules your heart. Uh, the word for rules there is like an umpire. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart. Um, let, let the peace of Christ be what is rendering the verdict when in your heart you're struggling to be at peace with, with, with another person. Let, let the peace of Christ be the decisive factor that says, no, 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 hold on. Remember peace. Remember what Christ has done for us. Um, well, the final, the final implication of a Christ-oriented life, number four, is that believers are to experience the enrichment of the gospel, the enrichment of the gospel expressed in our gatherings together, ex expressed in worshipful gathering. Look at verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's end there for a moment. The gospel message of, of Christ ought to make its home in our hearts. It, it ought to make its home there. Uh, he says, let the word of Christ that is, let the word that is about Christ, let this message that is about Christ, that's the message of the gospel, what Jesus has come to do for you and for me, and if we would just put our faith in him and entrust him with our sin problem, uh, we would find reconciliation with God. Let this, this message of the gospel dwell in you richly, he says. Let it dwell in you richly. Let it, that is, make its permanent residence in your life permanent residence, not just a three-night stay in a holiday inn, just, oh, just have it poke in and every, every once in a while. No, let, the, let this gospel message take its permanent residence in you, take its permanent residence in you. And he says, he says in you, and there's, there's two ways you can, you can take this, but hopefully you'll see either way you take it, it, it ends up with the same result, the same effects in the life of the church. Uh, one, in you, it's, it's, it is in the plural, and so he's, he, he could be saying, in you, as in, in each of you that I'm, I'm writing to, let, let the gospel just richly dwell in each of you individually so that when you come together, the gospel boils over into our gatherings and in how you relate to one another. Or he's saying, in you, as in, in all of you together, amongst you, as you gather together, let the let the word of Christ be so prominent here that it flows into these other areas. Either way, when we gather together, the gospel must be the focus and the gospel must be bubbling over into these other areas of how we relate to one another. How we relate to one another. Well, what does this look like? What does it look like? Well, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another 
in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He, he gives three, three results of this gospel-focused church in our, in our gatherings. It bubbles out into, into gospel instruction. And he's talking about mutual instruction, instructing and admonishing, he says, one another. Uh, not just from this pulpit, but in your conversations and in, in how you encourage one another and how, how you even, yes, admonish one another. But there's a difference. There is a difference between instruction, teaching, and admonishing someone out of my pride. Oh, that, that doesn't look good. There's a difference between teaching and admonishing someone out of my, my selfishness or out of judgment. And it makes a whole lot of difference when I'm teaching and admonishing someone out of an overflow of the gospel in my own life into theirs. There's a difference. A gospel-focused church will also experience gospel singing, he says. It will overflow into, into singing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. All these various different kinds of songs, he says, if we're so filled with the gospel, it'll bubble over into, into singing of the gospel, singing uh, with, with rejoicing and praise for what God has done in us. Yes, in, in times of difficulty in life, what does it look like to sing in, uh, as an overflow of the gospel? What does it look like to sing as an overflow of the gospel in, in times where you're, where you're comfortable or you're dealing with sin, all these things? And we experience that together, singing as an overflow of understanding the gospel in our own lives. Now, in, in the parallel passage over in Ephesians chapter three, he actually says, singing to one another. A part, part of our singing corporately is horizontal. Singing to one another with thankfulness in our hearts to God. That's what it says in Ephesians. So you picture, we, we, we're so overflowed with the gospel that, that we're singing not only to God, yes, in worship to God, but we're also singing to one another. We're looking around and, you, and you, see, you see someone who's going through something that's really hard and you see them singing, rejoicing in the person of Christ and what he's done for them. That moves you. That encourages you. That's part of singing to one another. We're encouraging one another with the words of Christ. We're encouraging one another with who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Well, the gospel is to be this fountainhead in our, in our corporate worship and in our gatherings together. Well, lastly, a Christ-oriented life should be experienced, he says, in everything you do. In everything you do. This is not just something we experience corporately in our gatherings, but everywhere in our lives, even, even in the mundane things. Uh, look at verse 17. He ends this, this section and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do, he says, whether it's your words or your deeds, which just covers everything, <laughs> if you're saying something or doing something, um, let that be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, under that banner, the Lord Jesus. <laughs> Under that banner, have everything you do uh, be done in his name. And we do that seeking to put on 
Christ-likeness and we look to him for these things. Um, Lord, would you help us? It's similar to how he, he began the whole main instruction part of this book back in chapter two, verse six, where he said, just as you received Christ, this Jesus that I just portrayed for you in chapter one, so walk in him. Now as you live the Christian life, you're living the Christian life, he says, rooted and built up in him. Rooted and built up in him. Well, it's easy for, for religious people um, to latch onto the, the simplicity of lists of things to do and not do. It's easy to latch onto those things. Wow, to summarize the Christian, what, what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is those who don't do these things and do, does these things. We have these two lists of vices and a list of virtues in this text. And it could be easy to just, this is the Christian life, and have that uh, be our focus. Yeah, we're, we're called to those things. We're called to those things. But how do we get there? Is that what a Christian is? Is that what it means to be in Christ? You know, there's, there's a whole lot of ethical unbelievers out there. That's not the sum of the Christian life. Now, the world can sometimes think that way about the church. Um, they'll, they'll send their children to, to Sunday schools. They'll send their children to Christian schools uh, in hopes that a little bit of that ethics will rub off on them and they would be a generally good person as they, as they grow up. But that's not, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news isn't, hey, you can live a better life. That's not the good news. That's not true kingdom ethics. Ethics in the kingdom doesn't involve just picking up a couple self-help books. We don't need just another self-help TED talk. That's not what the Christian life entails. No, living ethically in the kingdom of God and being transformed into the image of Jesus is born out of our union with him. You need Jesus. You need him. And, and out of your union with him and out of looking to Jesus, you can experience this transformed life, not just in changing of some habits, uh, but becoming more like him, becoming more like Christ himself. Christian, the, the gospel says because of Christ's death on the cross, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You can put to death the deeds of the flesh. The gospel says you no longer face the penalty of sin. He's transforming you from one day to the next. He's working on you and he'll never leave you. And he's gonna finish what he starts. He's gonna finish what he starts. That's the faithfulness of God for us in Jesus. You have to say, if you don't, you don't have Jesus, you can live a pretty okay ethical life. That's, yeah, you, you can. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have this. You don't have the hope of glory. You don't have the hope of, of a true transformed life uh, before God. The wrath of God hangs over those who practice any of these things. Well, guess what? That's all of us. That's all of us. We've all practiced these things. What do we need? We need him. We need Christ. We need his death to cover us that we might die to sin and be alive in Christ. And Christian, are, are you 
Are you struggling with sin? The answer is yes. Yes. Yes, we are. We do. We still struggle with sin. Know that you're forgiven in Christ. Know that he's covered you. Uh, and know that he, he came to free you from those things and designs to be working in your life uh, to transform you. That's what he came to do. Let's pray.